We're looking back at our historical figures out of the lenses of the monochromatic, uh, you know, ideology that we've been uh, fed in the last seven decades. But somehow in the midst of all of this, Savarkar has escaped a reassessment. Any study of the early Indian revolutionary movement is perhaps incomplete without a study of Savarkar, his writings, his philosophy uh, and his contribution to it. The power of the pen and the use of history as a tool to actually instigate, inspire uh, young men uh, to the path of revolution was what he did in his life. There had to be a sense of strategy, there had to be a sense of thinking, intellect that had to be put together. And this intellectual corpus that was provided to the revolutionary movement was done largely by Savarkar during this time. A very good afternoon everyone and thank you for braving the Delhi heat and being here. Uh, I'm sorry the talk got delayed a bit. I would particularly like to acknowledge the kind presence of Lord Meghnath Desai and Lady Kishwar Desai who are here today and all of you who are present. Uh, as the intellectual fountainhead of this whole idea of Hindu nationalism about which we heard quite a bit from Dr. Ratan Sharda, the, someone who made the concept of Hindutva popular. Uh, Vinayak Damodar Savarkar is certainly one of the most contentious political figures and thinkers of our times today. I think even as we speak here somewhere in some political rally in some election, either someone is mocking him for his so-called mercy petitions or somebody is, uh, you know, eulogizing him. So, and in the midst of these extremes of right and left, uh, I think history becomes a casualty. Uh, there's been there've been number of problems that uh, that have plagued a study of Savarkar. One, as Dr. Sharda alluded in his speech, uh, the fact that the Hindu Mahasabha that uh, Savarkar headed for the longest uh, period of time, uh, right from 1937, and the RSS had huge differences on several issues, and that also probably led to the fact that you know you know in the years after independence and particularly after the regime change in 2014 while there have been attempts to redefine rediscover the lives of many heroes of the past uh, we're going to hear about netaji subhash chandra bose after this so netaji has been reassessed uh, bhagat singh whether it's shama prasad mukherjee uh, we have a film now on lal bahadur shastri uh, we're looking back at our historical figures out of the lenses of the monochromatic uh, you know ideology that we've been uh, fed in the last seven decades but somehow in the midst of all of this savarkar has escaped a reassessment uh, and one of the reasons for that also is the fact that most of his writings were in marathi uh, in which he was a prolific writer and it is a, it is a real sad fact that a lot of uh, you know people who have read him have hardly accessed the Marathi uh, originals that he wrote. Being half a Maharashtrian myself and also with uh, a copious amount of uh, help that I received from uh, Mr. Savarkar's grandson, uh, Mr. Ranjit Savarkar and other friends, I've been able to try to put together uh, you know a narrative of the man uh, as probably never seen before, trying to understand the different complexities and also humanize him in the process. Now, uh, a, a person like Savarkar cannot, you know, be compressed in a talk of one hour. Uh, he's a man of multiple shades. So I will limit today's lecture to only one aspect of his very interesting and very stormy life. And that is his role and contribution to the Indian revolutionary movement. And that itself would come as a surprise to many because we find it very difficult to uh, accept anybody who's a revolutionary outside a Western Marxist kind of a lineage. And here is a man who did not draw his inspiration either from Marx or uh, his ideology, but from the Italian revolutionaries, whether it was Mazzini, Garibaldi and others, and also the Irish revolutionaries. So, but then it would not be, I think, an exaggeration to say that any study of the early Indian revolutionary movement is perhaps incomplete without a study of Savarkar, his writings, his philosophy, uh, and his contribution to it. And the most important part was he probably never wielded a gun himself and his gun was his pen. And the power of the pen and the use of history as a tool to actually instigate, inspire uh, young men uh, to the path of revolution was what he did in his life and which is what I shall be covering now in this uh, talk. Now between the uh, time of the foundation of the Indian National Congress in 1885 and the very distinct schism that developed in it uh, of the so-called 
moderates and the so-called extremists. Uh, you know, we, we all have heard about it, read about it in our history books. There's sadly one parallel stream that has gone completely unnoticed and probably also unresearched. And that is that of the armed conflict, which was a constant buzz that was there with blips, ups and downs. There were lull periods, there were, uh, you know, huge explosions, but it constantly kept going on from 1857, the uprising, till 1946, uh, the naval mutiny in Bombay, about which I think Anuj uh, would be talking about subsequently, Netaji and uh, the INA. So in this entire uh, stream of parallel struggle of freedom, if we actually flip the whole narrative of the Indian freedom struggle and look at it from the lens of the revolutionary or armed conflict, a completely different picture emerges uh, where, you know, the, the protagonists are different. Whom you call the moderates uh, were probably called the loyalists. Whom you call the extremists probably become the nationalists. So history then, you know, takes a very different kind of a flavor and shade. So in the midst of this, uh, Savarkar located himself right in the center of this long uh, span of the parallel movement that I spoke of from 1857 to 1946 and as a protege of Bal Gangadhar Tilak. Now Savarkar was born in, uh, in a Chitpavan Brahmin household in this very house uh, in Bhagur, uh, a small little village in Nashik. Uh, district in Maharashtra uh, on 28th May this very month 1883. He was the second of uh, three children, uh, three um, boys, uh, elder brother Ganesh Rao, a younger brother Narayan Rao and a sister Maina. Now this whole Chitpavan Brahmin community, there's a very interesting letter that uh, the governor of Bombay, Sir Richard Temple writes to the then Viceroy of India, Lord Lytton and he says, you know, what it's normally assumed that the British took over India from the Mughals, but actually uh, we seem to have taken the, taken the country from the Marathas. And it's because the vast part of the country that was under Maratha, uh, you know, control um, is whom they ultimately defeated in the war of 1818 and took over India. And the Marathas, the Peshwas belong to the family of the Chitpavan uh, Brahmin community. And Lord uh, Temple says, that whatever we do, how much ever education we give them, how much ever facilities we give them, they, they are part of the you know civil service, they are part of different uh, government bodies, but still their disaffection for us will not cease. Uh, they are this militant type who will uh, you know not uh, give up their hatred for us. And his statement was borne out by the fact that most of the great reformers, educationists, lawyers, thinkers of the time in Maharashtra, uh, right from you know Gopal Krishna Gokhale to Bal Gangadhar Tilak to uh, Chiplunkar, Vishnu Shastri Chiplunkar, Ganesh Agarkar and of course Savarkar were all from this very community. Again this little house where which is still there uh, here and right from his childhood Savarkar actually abhorred the caste system and despite being an upper caste so called upper caste Brahmin uh, boy he always loved to mix with his friends were all from the lower caste and he, uh, you know, ate with them, played with them. And he was also an extremely voracious reader, much beyond his age. And his common, uh, you know, pastime was to read all these newspapers and books along with all of them, have discussions with them. So this sense of, you know, community living, community prospering rather than in competition with anyone was a childhood trait. Now, simultaneously, poetry uh, germinated in him when he was all of eight years old. And uh, when he was six years old, he lost his mother, Radhabai, to cholera and it was left thereafter to his uh, father, Damodar Panth, to actually uh, look after the, the four children. Now, around this time in Maharashtra, there was this scourge of plague uh, that uh, ravaged different parts of the state. And the British government in its uh, whole, you know, zeal to actually control the epidemic took a very repressive measure, uh, which was those families which were detected of plague, the police would actually storm into those houses, uh, evacuate them, women would be molested, the puja ghars would be desecrated, and these people had to then be ostracized into camps which were far away from uh, the, the towns. So most of them, uh, you know, if there was a dead rat that was found anywhere in the house, it would be kept a secret till the time it actually, you know, mass deaths or something come into the uh, uh, forefront and people get to know that plague has hit this particular family. 
So this uh, anti-plague measures were so repressive that it caught, uh, caused a lot of consternation among the people who uh, were in Maharashtra. And there were three brothers who decided to take revenge uh, for this act of the British. And they were the Chafekar brothers. The, uh, the Damodar Hari Chafekar, Balakrishna Hari Chafekar and his younger brother Vasudev Hari Chafekar. And these uh, people decided that they'll pick up the gun and actually assassinate the plague uh, officer of Pune. Um, who, whose name was uh, Walter Rand and his lieutenant Charles Eist. Now this whole uh, you know assassination sent shockwaves in Bombay. People thought and Lord uh, Temple's letter did seem to come true. They also belong to the Chitpavan community. They are militant, they'll not and these were all actually English educated and all of that and despite the fact they, they were uh, ready to pick up arms and kill one of the uh, British uh, officials themselves. So it caused both kinds of reactions in Maharashtrian society. On the one hand, the British of course despised them. A lot of Maharashtrian newspapers themselves, including the Kesari, actually denounced this as a foolhardy attempt. Young uh, Savarkar was just about 14 years then and he was so uh, touched and moved by you know, the heroic tales that were going on about the Chafikars, the way in which they led, they, they were taken to the gallows with a smile and with uh, you know, verses of the Gita on their lips that he decided that he would go to the idol of his family deity, the Ashtabhuja Bhavani, the, the, the eight-handed uh, uh, goddess Bhavani, which had come to them as family heir, and this is still there in, their, uh, in the temple of Khandoba in Bhagur. Uh, and he made a vow in front of her in Marathi, Shatru's Martha Martha Mare to Zanzain. I will you know, pick up my gun and fight till my end, killing, the, killing my enemy, till the last enemy is there. And this was, this seemed like a very childish, you know, wow that someone made at the age of 14. But little did history know that the, that a whole generation was going to face the repercussions of this one night's wow that he took. He also composed, as I said, he was a, he had taken to Marathi poetry, being inspired by several, you know, old poets like Moropant and others. And uh, he had an entire ballad written called Chapekarancha Fatka or the ballad of the Chafikars, which became something like a, you know, yuppie kind of a young anthem for a lot of uh, uh, youth in Maharashtra, even in, uh, in up to the 1920s. Now, shortly after this, it was it so happened that Damodar Pant, who had the father, who was at the forefront of uh, you know the plague operations, they used to literally carry these dead bodies and have them cremated because nobody would come forward to touch these uh, you know plague-infected corpses. And in the process, Damodar Pant himself contracted plague and he died. And the the entire the entire uh, you know the the responsibility of taking care of the family fell on his younger brother who was uh, on his elder brother who was himself not too uh, old Ganesh Damodar or Baba Rao Savarkar uh, and the family decided then to move away from uh, Bhagur to Nashik and there in these narrow gullies and lanes of Nashik uh, what is now the Tilabhandeshwar temple which is still there was formed India's first organized secret society of young revolutionaries uh, it was initially known as the Rashtra Bhakta Samuha or the Association of Patriotic, uh, you know, uh, people. And along with 16-year-old Savarkar, uh, there were two others, uh, Raoji Krishna Phage and Triambak Rao Maskar who formed this. Now, the, the way this society was structured and Savarkar, as I said, was a voracious reader right from his childhood. And a lot of uh, the, read, the, the things that he read were of Western scholars, Western uh, thinkers and Thomas Frost's secret societies of uh, European revolutionaries made a very deep impact on him. And we see that uh, in the formation, in the way this uh, society was also formed, it was a secret society. And what uh, Frost says, I quote here, uh, that he had surveyed several such societies which existed in Europe for almost 100 years and written about some of the common features of these societies. He says, and I quote, a secret society may be distinguished from other combinations by the adoption of an oath of secrecy and fidelity, an initiatory ceremony and the use of symbols and passwords." Unquote. So these three little boys all in their 16, 20 uh, age group, they decided to keep this society so secretive. Even, uh, even Baba Rao didn't know that such a society existed. And uh, slowly they used to have meetings that were held in different parts. And this was the house, the old picture of the house, uh, you know, the top story of the house uh, where the society used to meet 
and this is how it looks now in fact Savarkar after independence gave a lot of money to uh, renovate this place and ensure that you know it's uh, it's kept in good shape here is where they would meet and have a lot of discussions on various topics related to global history the stories of revolutionaries of Mazzini Garibaldi of uh, Napoleon Bonaparte and others and uh, slowly they realized and and the passwords and secret uh, you know things that that were there so the code word for the society was Ram Hari so if someone said today Ram and Hari are going to meet that means no one was going to understand that we are having a meeting so Ram and Hari are going to meet at the uh, at the Chai Ka Adda which meant we are meeting at the office today evening so uh, it again complied to the requirements that Thomas Frost had set out now it was Savarkar who suggested that they needed a kind of a dual organization and here I don't want to make any comparisons to my uh, the speaker who preceded me about why a dual organization is needed a front end and a back end uh, a front organization which is uh, which is more uh, which is more into societal uh, outreach which talks about cultural issues which celebrates these Shivaji Jayantis and Ganesh Otsavs that Tilak had uh, popularized in different parts of Maharashtra and these could also become the hunting grounds for all these young revolutionaries who could then be brought into the core group and then given the oath and then made into hard-blooded uh, revolutionaries so uh, this front-end organization that uh, that was formed was known as a Mitra Mela that was the Rashtra Bhakta Samuha and this was the Mitra Mela the, the the group of friends so friends getting together having a nice discussion and then celebrating religious festivals and all of that and nobody would actually uh, have any kind of uh, doubts expressed about it now even these uh, the Mitra Mela topics whatever they be they, it could be about religion Vedanta it could be about uh, general topics Savarkar would somehow steer the conversation back into the topic of political freedom and armed revolution and why it was so important so they had actually decorated this is how the room looks from inside they had decorated the entire room with photographs of all the great revolutionaries right in the center there was a big photograph of Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj and then all the, uh, the, the, the great revolutionaries right from Vasudev Balwant Phadke a great uh, revolutionaries of the 1870s the Chafikars and the 1857 uh, you know stalwarts Lakshmi Bai, Tantya Tope all of them Bahadur Shah Zafar and the idea was to locate themselves as the rightful inheritors of this whole lineage of revolutionaries now this though this little room as you saw it was those creaky little steps it's as bad even now uh, though it was so far away from the main uh, you know the, the the main road and you could hardly hear what was being discussed there would always be somebody who would loiter around in the street to say if the voices are getting too loud they would say you better change the topic or you know you talk softly because there'll be always somebody uh, who would uh, you know uh, lurk around the police would get alerted initially they used to archive whatever was discussed particularly the non-political issues religious issues uh, so that you know even if there's a police raid they would look at it and say okay it's just some cultural organization and it's nothing uh, very uh, you know uh, uh, harmful and even the names of the registered members was not kept so again the whole strategy was very similar to that of uh, uh, secret societies the the objective was also kept as vague striving for the all-round development of our country whatever that means so so this was how uh, they uh, operated in this little uh, room in Nashik and here it was also important as I said these discussions of Savarkar would also try to make the other members make common villagers also being nationally conscious as, as well as globally conscious about the kind of activities that were happening uh, all over the world and it's very important here to also emphasize that our historical narrative has probably uh, you know uh, brought revolutionary movements as these mindless activities of these uh, you know firebranded radicals who are conducting political assassinations throwing bombs here and there but that was not so there had to be a sense of strategy there had to be a sense of thinking intellect that had to be put together and this intellectual corpus that was provided to the revolutionary movement was done largely by Savarkar during this time now at this point so uh, in January 1902 Savarkar enrolled at the prestigious Ferguson College in Pune uh, and he moved there and it was here that he he composed this very famous song which I thought a little bit of it I should play
So this was almost the uh, you know the the recreation of the Bankim Chandra Chatterjee for Maharashtra, where uh, the f the female uh, nature of the the nation was invoked and Jayostute uh, Swatantrate Bhagavati. This was the uh, Swatantra Lakshmi, the Murti of Swatantra Lakshmi, which is still there at that uh, particular uh, you know room in Nashik. Uh, and all their letters would start with Swatantra Lakshmi ki jai or you know hail the goddess of freedom. So that was uh, what happened then and with, with Savarkar moving to Pune, the onus of running the Mitra Mela uh, fell largely on uh, the elder brother Baba Rao and so it was very ironical he was someone who wanted to renounce the whole uh, family life and actually become a sannyasi uh, under Swami Vivekananda. And from there, it was like a 180 degree shift to actually become a hardcore revolutionary, which he became. And he started organizing lectures of various people in Nashik. And in 1903, uh, you know, the, it, it was decided that there were so many members in different parts. What just started in that little room, there were branches that started opening in different parts of Maharashtra. So like the Congress adhivations and sessions that used to happen, they decided, let's get everyone together in a conference. So the first conference was held in 1903 uh, in uh, Dhule and nearly 70 members from different parts of Maharashtra attended this and the very next year in 1904 about 200 members uh, of the Mitra Mela had actually come together and it was here that uh, uh, Savarkar decided to change the name of the society from Mitra Mela to actually Abhinav Bharat uh, or Young India just on the lines of the Young Italy of uh, Mazzini. And these were some of the young Turks of uh, uh, the, the, the Abhinav Bharat, all, all dressed up in their wonderful Maharashtrian attire. And it was, uh, as I said, there were these initiatory ceremonies that, uh, that one had to go through. So there was the sword of, uh, uh, alleged sword of Chhatrapati Shivaji, which one had to touch. And there was argya of water given and then a, a, an oath was actually administered to all of them. Now the uh, society members themselves used to destroy these oaths so that nobody got to know uh, about it. But uh, with a lot of difficulty, I think I managed to get a copy of that uh, original from the British Library in London, which is where I think everything about us will be found. And this is what it reads. Bande uh, Mataram, salutations to the mother in the name of God, in the name of Bharat Mata, in the name of all the martyrs that have shed their blood for Bharat Mata. By the love innate in all men and women that I bear to the land of my birth, wherein lies the sacred ashes of my forefathers and which is the cradle of my children. By the tears of the countless mothers for their children whom the foreigner has enslaved, imprisoned, tortured and killed, I, such and such, convinced that without absolute political independence or Swarajya, my country can never rise to the exalted position among the nations of the earth which is her due. And convinced also that Swarajya can never be attained except by the waging of a bloody and relentless war against the foreigner, I solemnly and sincerely swear that I shall from this moment do everything in my power to fight for independence and place the lotus crown of Swaraj on the head of my mother. And with this object I join the Abhinav Bharat, the revolutionary society of all Hindustan. And I swear that I shall ever be true and faithful to this, my solemn oath, and that I shall obey the orders of this body. If I betray the whole or any part of this solemn oath or I betray this organization or any other working with a similar object, may I be doomed to the fate of a perjurer. So this was uh, the oath that all of them took and annual sessions then became a regular feature. In 1905 it was held at Kothur, in 1906 in Sion uh, and slowly what they also started doing was they started attending the Congress sessions in different parts in Calcutta, Surat and so on. And in the day, they would appear like Congress uh, members <laughs> attend the conference and slowly by night, all the revolutionaries would get together. And particularly since the two main hotbeds of uh, revolution in India at that time was Maharashtra and Bengal, to, to, uh, Punjab came in much later, uh, maybe after the Jallianwala Bagh incident. But uh, yeah, but the, the main hotbeds being Bengal, the Anushilan Samiti, Swadhin Bharat and other organizations that were uh, germinating in Bengal. So a lot of these uh, Abhinav Bharat members started forming these alliances with them, talks with them. So the idea was again, what I emphasized right at the beginning, 
create that coordinated uh, you know armed rebellion uh, disaffection in the army and ensure that it's a uh, it's a coordinated response and uh, and in the days when there was no whatsapp groups and all of that it was only this way that you could probably get together and have this coordinated attack uh, so there they met people like Aurobindo Ghosh and uh, his brother Barindranath Ghosh uh, who, who were all later involved in the Alipur bomb case. So soon, you know, branches of Abhinav Bharat started mushrooming at Junar, Bombay, Pain, Satara, Nagpur, Nagar, Sholapur, Dhule, Kolhapur, Baroda, Indore, Gwalior, Aurangabad, Hyderabad and several other places. So from that small little room, in just a span of five years, you had uh, an organization that had spread its tentacles so far and wide. And, with, and it was one thing to start an organization, but as the leader of the organization, what was the strategy? What was the thinking? What was the purpose with which this was set? And so I think the best is Savarkar speaking himself, and I shall quote here. Uh, the Abhinav Bharat calls for total and complete freedom to attain which armed revolution is an inevitable means. And mind you, he's talking about total and complete freedom at the time when the Congress moderates were still passing on petitions uh, to say, you know, let us give us a little bit of an increase in judiciary, a little bit of all of that. Even Tilak was not talking about uh, Purna Swaraj as yet. Uh, but he goes on to say, but was our goddess of freedom, that Ashtabuja Bhavani, Swatantra Lakshmi, was she a bloodthirsty and anarchist deity? No, not at all. The excess of hyper-nationalism is as dangerous as the complete lack of it. I think a very important uh, word for our times. We need to deliberate on the binaries of violence versus non-violence, truth versus falsehood, nationalism and humanity in our weekly meetings. Our testing stone needs to be utilitarianism the maximum good to the maximum people. But truth is again relative. And how do we then define what is good and what is bad? Well, the obvious act such as a thief going scot-free and a saint being executed is clearly bad, untruth, disqualification, adharma. And whenever the cruel exploiting force gags the voice of truth in this manner, then the forces of justice must unite to decimate them. And do that. to do that, secretive and strategic coming together becomes our dharmic responsibility. After all, Lord Krishna also grew up in stealth in Nanda's house before killing Kamsa. If he had gone strictly with the truth, he would have been killed by Kamsa's demons. Similarly, Shivaji stealthily escaped from Aurangzeb's capture. Secrecy per se is neither good nor bad, but what its utility is for gives it a positive or negative character. Similar is the case with national struggle. For the restoration of legitimate rights through which the maximum good is possible for the maximum number of people, the struggle through violence is also a virtuous act while supporting an exploitative force that captures another's land, property and rights and destroys another's house is demonoic and needs to be destroyed ruthlessly. The nation must always be good for its people." Unquote. So this was the founding you know, principle of a secret society according to Savarkar. And what were the uh, measures that he recommended that they took? Because that's also important. You had such a large organization, 500 members spread across different parts of India. He says, infiltrating the army and the police, creating a vast network of a secret armed force, establishing contacts with revolutionaries from Russia, Italy, Ireland and other countries, striking attacks on the main protagonists of British administration, having stocks of arms in the provinces and border areas for quick deployment in case of need, low-intensity revolts all the time to keep the administration busy and diverted before a big blow uh, can be dealt with, and most importantly, the will to die and to inspire others to do as well. We also know, he says, that all the 30 crore Indians would not join us. But even if 12, 2 lakh brave people come and join our movement, it would suffice. Those who called revolution as childish and mind, mindless and relied only on servile applications must realize that their means are flawed and that can never help us achieve the goal of complete freedom. We are just a matchstick. But please know that if we light it, we can burn down the whole edifice of a palace, as has happened all over the world. So, you know, a, a teenager with clarity of mind, vision and purpose uh, and leading a pack of followers in the right path. That was what uh, he was doing. Now, around this time in Pune, you also had, the, it was 1905, it was the time of the partition of Bengal. 
uh, and it was under Savarkar's uh, advice that Tilak decided to organize this mass, first mass bonfire of foreign goods in India, which was done in Pune. And Abhinav Bharat uh, cadres went all over the town, gave fiery speeches and ensured that, uh, you know, cartloads of foreign uh, clothes were collected and a mass bonfire was then held. And the principal of Ferguson College, Sir Raghunath Purushottam Paranjpe, he was an Anglophile. He was, in fact, the first Indian to achieve the coveted title of senior wrangler at the University of uh, Cambridge. And he was, in fact, known as Wrangler Paranjpe. And he was so aghast that, you know, one of his students had indulged in such an anti-national activity. And so he rusticated Savarkar from, uh, from the college. He was also uh, made to pay a fine of rupees 10. So I think the, the, the credit of not only organizing the first student bonfire uh, in the country, but also facing the flag and paying the price for it, uh, you know, goes to him during this time. Now, around this time, after he finished his uh, Bachelor of Arts and uh, LLB in Pune, uh, Tilak uh, recommended Savarkar's name to that great colossus for Indian revolutionary Shamji Krishnavarma, a great scholar who uh, had... Uh, degrees from Oxford and Cambridge and Sanskrit. He had served as a Diwan in several uh, princely states. In fact, it was his ashes uh, which Prime Minister Modi brought back to India after so many uh, years. It was there and he said, till my country is free, I don't want my ashes to be uh, to come to a dependent uh, country. So he wrote to, uh, Shamji was giving a lot of scholarships and fellowships to young Indians, particularly those of the revolutionary bent of mind to come over to different parts of Europe, particularly London and study there. And uh, so he recommended Savarkar's name and uh, uh, he got the fellowship and he moved to London in the year 1906. And this was the famous house in London, uh, in Highgate, uh, called the India House. Uh, and you also have the famous blue plaque of uh, the, the, the Greater London Council, where they still mention that uh, Indian patriot and philosopher lived here. Whatever we Indians may call him in our uh, political rallies, I think the British still recognize him as an Indian patriot. Uh, so it was this India house where, which became a uh, hotbed of the, some of the greatest revolutionaries of those times, Lala Hardayal, VVS Iyer, uh, Virendranath Chattopadhyay, Madanlal Dhingra, MPT Acharya, Madam Bhikaji Kama, who kept coming in and out. Then there was Sardar Singh Rana, Suksagar Dutt, Sikandar Hayat Khan, Asaf Ali Khan of Nabha, several others. And... Uh, no sooner than he uh, reached London, he decided to start a branch of Abhinav Bharat there also. And that was, of course, rechristened as Free India Society. And it did quite the same kind of work. And this was a complete different picture, all of them in English suits compared to that Maharashtrian attire that you saw some time back. All of them sitting in front of the India House in London in 1906 or 7. Uh, so they held regular meetings, celebrated religious festivals such as Dashera, the birth and death anniversaries of great leaders like Shivaji, Guru Gobind Singh, Guru Nanak and all of that. And several Indian students from Cambridge, Oxford, Edinburgh, Manchester, they all started becoming members of the Free India Society. Now, within six months of reaching uh, London, Savarkar decided to access the entire corpus of Joseph Mazzini's uh, you know, writings and translate them into Marathi. In, uh, there's about 300 pages with a 25-page preface which he wrote. Now, here also, I mean, it's all in a very, very coded language. Uh, it's not a direct call to action to Indians, but using the Italian example, he gave a prescription for what Indians could do uh, likewise in India. So, princely states there under Austrian, uh, you know, uh, control, they had a lack of arms. Uh, so, they used to go to other countries, smuggle arms, form secret societies, uh, learn the art of uh, warfare and then, uh, you know, execute this, spread disaffection in the army. So, he just mentioned that Italy did all of this. So, this is what we need to do in India also. And that is how uh, we would be able to carry on the revolution in his absence while he was in London. Now, the British obviously got uh, track of this and they proscribed this uh, manuscript. It was sent back to India, smuggled and sent to Babara who published it, but the manuscript was uh, proscribed in July 1907. Now, over the next two years, from 1908 to 1909, he completed his monumental and meticulously researched work 
uh, on the 1857 uprising and it was credit to him that you know it was first called the first war of independence till then demonized as the sepoy mutiny uh, and this is his original writing and the original manuscript of that which i managed to pick up from his grandson uh, where you know he he dismissed all these colonial arguments of uh, uh, you know greased cartridges economic motives of royal families the doctrine of lapse which was all uh, done and he argued that it was a nationalist ideology which was what motivated the uprising and it also led to the end of hindu muslim uh, enmity uh, and working towards a common cause and he says again and i quote from his work uh, translated from marathi can any sane man maintain that an all embracing revolution could have taken place without a principle to move it could that vast tidal wave from peshawar to calcutta have risen in blood without a fixed intention of throwing something by means of its force every revolution must have a fundamental principle a revolutionary movement cannot be based on a flimsy and momentary grievance like those grease cartridge or whatever it is always due to some all moving principle for which hundreds and thousands of men fight the moving spirits of revolution are deemed holy or unholy in proportion to the principle underlying them whether it's beneficial or wicked in history the deeds of an individual or nation are judged by the character of the motive to write a full history of a revolution means necessarily tracing all the events back to their sources the motive unquote and the motives according to him were twofold one was swarajya and swadharma for uh, for the cause of one's uh you know own rule and also own protection of one's religion both of which were under threat under the uh, british uh, rule and for him the, the the book actually did not actually call for widespread revolution mayhem anarchy or anything but again a strategist who advised his followers strike when the iron is hot and as i said right in the beginning to give india that sense of a history of her own and use that as a tool of inspiration for young revolutionaries now this book too i mean it has a fascinating a book on history has a fascinating history of itself so this uh, so the manner in which they would smuggle these to india was very uh, wonderful they would put them in very artistic covers uh, with false names called uh, the don quixo papers the posthumous pickwick papers and all kinds of names in false bottoms and then uh, evading custom officials in different countries it would finally reach india and when it came to baba rao in solapur he tried to get it published but somehow the british got to know uh, the book was uh, they they hounded him the printing press refused to print it so he sent it back to london from there the manuscript went to paris uh, where again the british got to know and then the police raided the printing presses so then again the manuscript they decided to take it from there and take it to germany Uh, because you know given the huge uh, amount of indology uh, influence there they thought the nagari script is something that people there would know so but then the the type uh, uh, press made a mess of it and so the book was uh, the project was abandoned and it was later sent to belgium and that was where it was uh, you know finally printed and later translated and then smuggled back to india and sent to different parts of india as you know a a, a kind of a bible for revolutionaries so in fact uh, the viceroy lord minto in a very terse statement says i hope we can stop savarkar's book on the mutiny from entering india at any cost and he underlines that and so the the british invoked several laws of the time sea customs act the post office act to ensure that the manuscript doesn't come here because they knew the the dangers that were involved in writing and as i said he may not have wielded a Uh, a, a, a weapon himself but the power of the pen uh, was mightier being mightier than the sword i think is best exemplified in his uh, case which is what the british uh, were so terrified of him and wanted him eliminated at all costs now along with intellectual corpus there was also a lot of revolutionary work too that was done uh, there was hemchandra das kanungo on the right and his uh, savarkar's associate senapati bapat or uh, pandurang pandurang mahadev bapat Uh, who he sent both of them to paris to learn the art of making a bomb so there was this famous bomb manual uh, that was supposed to be doing the rounds in france and so they wanted to learn and get that back to india now they went there that again is like an alfred hitchcock kind of a film where you know they kept changing from one hotel to the other because the police were all constantly 
behind their backs and they finally they were led to a Russian professor who told them all about uh, you know uh, secret societies who then led them to a Russian tailor and imagine uh, lo and behold you had a bomb manual with a Russian tailor. Now these guys took the manual uh, and then realized that this is all in Russian. Now how do we read this damn thing? So then, uh, you know, there are different versions of how that was then translated. One version says the tailor himself took them to two Russian ladies. Uh, one of them, Miss Amaya, who was doing her MBBS in Berlin. So they went all the way from France to Berlin and she translated this. She took her own time. She took one year to uh, put this whole thing and these poor men actually waited till then to get that translated. The other version is that Senapati Bapat had a German girlfriend and her name was Anna Claus, uh, who again lived in uh, Berlin. So irrespective of whether it was a girlfriend or it was somebody else, there was some lady in Berlin who uh, knew Russian, but who took a long time uh, of almost a year to sit and translate these photographs. Uh, it was almost 50 to 60 photographs, which were then translated, uh, cyclostyled and sent back again, evading customs, doing all those false bottom packages. Now, along with this, two other associates, uh, the great Indian revolutionary, Madam Bhikaji Kama, about which, about whom so little is uh, known or written, and Sardar Singh Rana, they represented India at the International Socialist Congress, which was held on 22nd August 1907 at Stuttgart in Germany. Now, the, the British tried their level best to ensure that they were not given a chance to speak uh, at this uh, conference, but somehow they managed to. Not only did uh, Madam Kama speak, but she also unfurled openly the first uh, flag of Indian independence, which was actually uh, designed by Savarkar. Uh, it had three stripes, uh, green, saffron and red. And in the center, Vande Matram written in gold. There were eight stars representing the uh, states of India and also the sun and the moon representing the different faiths. Uh, the Hindu and Muslim faiths of India. So it was like the first representative flag of all India, which Savarkar designed and which Kama, uh, uh, you know, unfurled there and total freedom, no compromise on that is what she postulated. Now, the fact that the British considered, slowly they realized that, you know, this very innocuous, beautiful looking house, there was lots of things going on behind. There were reports that there was a small little laboratory of uh, bomb uh, manufacture in the background. And Savarkar himself used to come out with an apron full of picric acid and all of that, uh, you know, all over him trying to blow up a, a bomb and so on. So they realized that something is amiss and uh, they finally decided that we should put this place under strict surveillance. Now, the way the British surveillance worked was also very odd. On the one hand, uh, you know, you had the uh, special branch of the Metropolitan Police in London and which took care of all these people whom they called anarchists. And their counterpart in India was the, uh, the Department of Criminal Intelligence or DCI uh, and the director of which was a very, very uh, uh, important man. He collected reports from all the presidencies, princely states, made weekly reports which were sent to the Viceroy and to the Secretary of State of India. Now, these two organizations, like typical British bureaucracy, never spoke to each other. And so there was always loss of information, loss of translation uh, between these two organizations. And But then there were, there were uh, spies who would lurk around the room trying to find out. There were some who would infiltrate the organization, Maharashtrians, who would uh, say, I'm, I want to join the Free India Society. But then there would be agents who would actually carry messages back to the British. So one of the, his associates, uh, MPT Acharya, uh, you know, talks about this intelligence gathering uh, system of the British, which was so flawed. And I quote him again. Early in the morning, the detectives used to stand or loiter around uh, near the house to follow anyone who went out of the India house. First, it was disgusting for me to see their faces. I wanted to make use of them as my guide. I went out for a walk. About 50 yards behind me, one detective followed me like my shadow. I went on walking till I passed a post office. Then I walked back. The detective was waiting for the post office to let me pass. Suddenly, when I came in front of the post office, I asked him, where is the post office, please? The man answered, I don't know. I asked him then, if you can't help me find out the post office, why do you follow me? He was very perturbed and angry. I used to try the same method upon every new man that was set against me to show that I know who he was. Sometimes Savarkar and other members of the house tried to get rid of these detectives in a very peculiar manner. They walked till they came to a lone taxi and suddenly jumped into it and drove away. 
while the detective used to stand helpless looking for another free taxi." <laughs> Unquote. Now, copies of this bomb manual which were procured there were sent to India along with Browning pistols, which was very rare to get in India then. And uh, these reached several revolutionaries in different parts of India, Khudiram Bose, Prafulla Chaki, uh, Kanahyalal Dat, Satyendra Bose, and this young man of all of 17, Anant Lakshman Kanhere, who was so in Nashik, who was so fired up against the British that he decided that I'm going to, you know, assassinate the district collector of Nashik, A.M.T. Jackson. And uh, it's very, it's a very poignant picture in itself because he knew that he was going to, he was going to shoot him point blank and he knew he was going to be caught and executed. So just two days before the assassination, he goes to a studio and gets himself photographed in, in all wonderful attire and says, and he writes behind it saying, this is the last memory that my family will have of me. And so uh, it's, uh, it's, that was the photo in a studio in Nashik and this, uh, there was a public you know, a reception that was organized for Jackson at the Vijayanand Theatre, which is still there in Nashik. And when he came there, Kanere goes and murders him. And this again creates a huge sensation uh, and the natural suspicion falls on Baba Rao uh, and the whole Abhinav Bharat there, uh, a lot of them get uh, uh, arrested. Baba Rao is tried and sent to 25 years of life imprisonment uh, called transportation for life to the Kalapani cellular jail in the Andamans. But undeterred by all of this, back in London, uh, another associate of uh, Savarkar, Madanlal Dhingra, he took it upon himself that uh, there was this uh, Lord Curzon Wiley, who was uh, a former British MP, and he was also the person who was in charge of conducting the surveillance on the Indian students. So, let's assassinate him. And Savarkar gave him the pistol and, you know, uh, told him, unless you kill him and come, don't show me your face. Uh, because he had made several attempts to kill Lord Curzon and uh, Lord uh, Morley, but had failed. And so this was a chance that he didn't want to leave. And he finally succeeded in killing Curzon Wiley in 1909. He was put to trial and he gave this epic statement. It's there all over the internet. People can see the, 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 the statement of bravery, which many say Savarkar actually wrote for him and also got it published in London newspapers. And in fact, Lala Hardayal wrote, and I quote again, in times to come, when the British Empire in India shall have been reduced to dust and ashes, Dhingra's monuments will adorn the squares of our chief towns, recalling to the memory of our children the noble life and the noble death of one who laid down his life in a far-off land for the cause he loved so well." Unquote. Unfortunately, I don't think anyone in India or in Indian history textbooks, as you were mentioning, has much of a mention of Madanlal Dhingra at all. Now, finally, the, 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 the British finally realized that there was a huge movement with intercontinental, uh, you know, ramifications and this had to be stopped at any cost. Now, another question to ask is why did most of these people, the Indian Revolution movement actually happened outside India a lot more than within India. That was because the, uh, the, the colonial laws that were so strict, particularly the sedition laws, which continue to be strict. Uh, are were not as bad as uh, you, you know in these uh, metropoles of London and Paris. So most of these revolutionaries operated from there, and it was very easy to even send to buy arms and also to smuggle uh, them. So Virendranath Chattopadhyay and Madam Kama used to send uh, you know revolvers to India, concealing them in toys which were called as Christmas presents. So, and then, you know, that would then be used by revolutionaries. So, a huge unraveling, finally, the Metropolitan Police and the DCI in India started talking to each other and a lot of documentation which is available in the British Library shows that they woke up to the danger that they were facing and they realized that the main kingpin of this whole thing was Savarkar and he was arrested in London on multiple charges, including procuring and distributing arms, sedition and waging of war against the King Emperor of India. Now, and this photograph also, I mean, the way he's sitting there in uh, royal splendor and with not a sense of remorse on his face was taken after he was arrested. Uh, the usual photos you take of uh, prisoners uh, where they're all giving these uh, blank looks. But this guy had this confident look on his face saying, I don't care uh, at all for what you, you're going to do. And so most, uh, the, the British also were very keen that he should be deported to India. And because, as I said, the laws there were so much stricter that they could keep him in jail for life. And that is exactly what they wanted, considering 
he was termed as a dangerous uh, d category prisoner uh, and but savarkar and all his associates across europe tried to ensure in all ways to see that you know he can be tried in london itself so that he could be let off because a very very unfair fugitive and offenders act was invoked against him and he was not a fugitive he was a bona fide student who had gone there on a scholarship so on what basis are you going to uh, you know arrest and the the trail was so flimsy though uh we know now that he sent the browning pistols or the bomb manual the british documentation doesn't really show it was all on the basis of inference and hearsay so they thought they had a very very strong case uh to ensure that he doesn't get uh, you know um, he doesn't face uh, go back to india but somehow he lost the cases in london and he was sent uh, to india and uh, he, on his way back he was sent in this uh, ship called ss moria and when even there you know there was there was strict surveillance around him there were two guards who would always loiter everywhere even if he had to go to the toilet uh, there would be two people who would stand out and see uh, you know when he's coming back now despite all this dodging all this when the ship uh, was docked at the port of masai in uh, france this man uh, on the pretext of going to the uh, toilet managed to open the porthole of the toilet and jump into the sea and swam a few yards and went into french territory uh, and then he goes there and then he finds a french sergeant and he doesn't know french so he says please take me to a magistrate please take me to a magistrate and by then these people have seen him jump out the british soldiers come running behind it's like a huge drama in itself and then the french man doesn't understand english they don't know how to communicate with each other and finally he says okay take him he says thief thief is all that they heard and so he hands over uh, the the this fellow to the british soldiers who bring him back now this became a huge case of international arbitration at the court uh, the international court of hague just like what we are facing now with uh, jadhav between india and pakistan because savarkar's contention was that look i am a indian citizen and I, i landed on french territory and so now the 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 right to either capture me or deport me extradite me to india is not with those british soldiers but with the french authorities so if france so he was a lawyer and he knew the law and you know knew how to exploit it it's always i think excellent to uh, learn and understand law because then you know what the loopholes of that are so uh, with no offense to any lawyers who might be present here though so uh, so he knew that Uh, this was the case and so it was up to france to decide whether you know you let them back and the french pre- uh, prime minister briand was under immense pressure it was like french sovereignty has been uh, you know taken over by britain and they sent we are under immense pressure in the parliament and we uh, the government almost came to the uh, uh, you know step of collapse so uh, the britain and france took the case all the way to hague uh, but britain somehow managed to ensure that it had its way arm twist france and savarkar lost the case there also and uh, in the uh, you know trial that was held in india called the nasik conspiracy trial and the nasik murder trial two simultaneous trials it was the most unfair of trials first of all the charges invoked on him were unfair and even the uh, the the trial was unfair because it was without a jury or without a right to a lawyer or an appeal and so when the judge actually asked him what do you have to say in self defense he is supposed to have uh, you know uh, gallantly told him that look i don't uh, believe in the sovereignty or authority of this court so i am and i know the outcome is fixed so there is no point in my argument and i'm fine to face whatever uh, comes my way and the punishment that came was uh, the the maximum that was given to anybody which was two life terms of imprisonment which meant 50 years 25 years of one life imprisonment to kalapani in uh, cellular jail and in fact it is said in the court records that even then he he supposed to have borne it with such fortitude and said that okay finally the british also uh, have agreed to the indian the hindu tradition of two life terms and reincarnation so i'm happy that i've been given two life terms of imprisonment now after this there were lots of uh, you know in bande mataram which madam kama ran in paris there were lots of agitations in different parts of europe for his release uh, um, which even the uh, you know europeans also participated in but nothing came to uh, uh, any fruition and finally he was sent to the cellular jail uh, in andamans and this is a very very rare photograph of him on a gla- the glass plate film of him actually in the prisoner uh, attire 
at cellular jail that's a different story altogether he faced probably one of the most inhuman uh, you know punishments that anyone could have six months of solitary confinement with standing you know constant standing handcuffs uh, so there was no human contact whatsoever his cell faced the gallows so every time all the all of the human contact that he had was of screaming men who were taken to the gallows to be hanged and even basic human facilities like toilet and good food was not provided to him and also the other political prisoners of alipur bomb case and others who were lodged at cellular jail uh, and you know the, the the food was basi food it had uh, pieces of reptiles and uh, all kinds of things there so most of them when they ate it they would end up with diarrhea uh, and they were fixed times to go to the toilet uh in no other time you could go uh you know to the toilet and if you had to go you had to bribe the warder and he would beat you up and all kinds of things abuse you and so most of them actually used to defecate in the, their cells and you had to stand i'm sorry to uh, narrate this but i think this country needs to know all those jokers who keep talking about uh, you know uh what were those mercy petitions who is a patriot and who is a coward needs to know the kind of tortures that uh, a lot of people outside this mono narrative of uh, the great uh, fighters of our freedom struggle actually bore and didn't make a huge song and dance of it uh and so so this kind of treatment uh, as i said punishing handcuffs this kolhu uh which was also so the handcuffs this was how you had to stand for 6 months uh, in a row and this thing that you see here was the kolhu the oil uh, grinding mill where usually the uh, bell uh, the chalata hai usko but then here you had the man who had to do it all day and uh, there was a stipulated weight of the oil that you had to extract and at the end of the day if you hadn't and most of them would not 30 pounds or something of oil and if you did not extract that you were flogged you were not given food which anyway they didn't want to eat that food but still you needed to sustain and even while you're doing that and in the heat of port blair and andaman where they were given these gunny sacks uh, you know clothes made of gunny sacks to wear which led to skin rashes skin diseases all kinds of tortures which he and several others barin ghosh ulaskar dat and all of them have it it breaks your heart to actually read those uh, this thing many people either went mad uh there was a uh, ulaskar dat actually went insane he was put in a, there was a special mental asylum that was started in uh, island of hado in uh, port blair uh, there was indu bhushan roy who actually committed suicide because he said death is better than this hell hole so this was the kind of torture that most of them faced and this was his cell uh, it was uh, it was a double ended cell where you know entry to it was restricted and i think the most famous uh, and those were the uh, it is not very clear here but those were the vessels which were given to them one for daily ablutions and one for the food that was given in that uh, the rotten little plate so uh, and this was i think popularized recently when the prime minister also paid his homage at this particular place so uh, it was after 12 long years and i'm sure there'll be questions about the mercy petition so i will not talk about it here uh, so uh, after he was arrested in 1910 and in 1921 uh, he was released from cellular jail but taken to first uh, ratnagiri prison and then yerwada jail uh, and in 1924 he was actually released to join his family this is a family portrait savarkar his elder brother ganesh rao the younger brother narayan rao their respective wives the one in the center is his sister and this is savarkar's wife yamuna bai so it was only in 1924 that he was set free but not uh, you know with with great conditions uh, that one is he would not participate in any political activities and that he would remain within the confines of the district of ratnagiri uh, and so between and this was supposed to be for a span of 5 years but that span expanded to almost 13 years so literally a man who was in the prime of his youth a brilliant scholar uh, you know from 1910 that he was arrested in uh, uh, london he comes out into public life as the president of the hindu mahasabha in 1937 27 years of uh, all kinds of strictures and surveillance that one faces in in various degrees and in the uh, meanwhile his uh, bachelor's degree was revoked by the bombay university and the british uh, uh, government decided to take away though he had qualified in the law examinations he was not called to the grace in the bench to practice so basically at the end of the day on paper he was just a metric pass 
So after all the brilliance, all the scholarship, that was all that he was left uh, uh, to show as his achievement uh, uh, academically. So I'll probably conclude with, uh, with one of his quote, which talks about the philosophy of revolution, since this particular lecture was, uh, you know, confined to re his revolutionary aspect and not what he did in Ratnagiri or the Hindu Mahasabha later. In Ratnagiri, uh, like Ratanji mentioned, the whole social reforms that were initiated in terms of uh, uh, Hindu Sangathan, uh, crea creating a unity among the Hindu community, the scourge of untouchability that had to be removed. He was probably the first one, even before Ambedkar came to the scene, to begin the whole uh, idea of intercaste dining for which and being a uh, orthodox brahmin himself he faced uh, enormous amount of uh, 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 opposition from orthodox brahmins of ratnagiri to when uh, when temple entry was banned he started a, his own temple for entry of all castes which is still there in ratnagiri called the patit pavan mandir which began in 1931 so plethora of such things which happened and many people do accuse that you know he's he betrayed the revolution, uh, revolutionary movement in some way. But that is not true. Uh, it is said that though he took away active part because every letter, every word of his uh, uh, was under surveillance. And the sad part was he was under surveillance both under the British and immediately after independence, even by the independent government of India, because he was accused of being an accomplice in the Gandhi murder case. And uh, all his private papers are sitting here at the Nehru Memorial uh, museum and library. Uh, every letter that came in and out is there with them because uh, he, he was not to be trusted. Uh, so, uh, he lent a lot of moral and intellectual support to the revolutionaries. It's, it is said that he met Bhagat Singh and in fact in the Nehru memorial there is a very uh, telling and revealing interview of this man called Durga Das Khanna who was a congressman and he was a former uh, you know uh, member of the Hindustan Socialist Republican Association of Bhagat Singh and Sukhdev and others and they said that when they were interviewed, they, they were interviewing Durga Das Khanna, one of the questions they asked was, have you read Savarkar's biography which was called Life of Barrister Savarkar and also this 1857 book. So this was almost as I said the bible for Indian revolutionaries and uh, it was a, it was like the uh, entry criteria to become a revolutionary in India and it was copies of this book were found with almost all the members of the Lahore conspiracy case in the 1930s and a decade later in the 1940s Rash Bihari Bose and Netaji Subhashchandra Bose had an edition of this Indian War of Independence actually printed in Japan. A Tamil edition of this book too which was edited by Jaimani Subramanyam one of the publicity officers of Netaji's INA was also discovered in tatters in one of the raids. So thus almost three and a half decades after that book was written and brought to India with so much trouble this served as an inspiration uh, for revolution, the revolutionary movement in India and that's why what I started with that parallel movement which you draw from 1857 uprising to the naval mutiny of 1946. If you look at it and you posit Savarkar right in the middle as an intellectual colossus of that, the picture is completely different from what we are taught in our history books. So in conclusion, Savarkar's own words summarize his philosophy of a revolution and its objectives and I quote, Whenever the natural process of national and political evolution is violently suppressed by the forces of wrong, then revolution must step in as a natural reaction and therefore ought to be welcomed as the only effective instrument to re-enthrone truth and right. You rule us by bayonets and under these circumstances it's a mockery to talk about constitutional agitation when no constitution exists at all. But it would be worse than a mockery even a crime, and I think this is a, a pointer to our times, it would be a mockery, uh, even a crime to talk of revolution when there is a constitution uh, that allows the fullest and freest development of a nation. And I think this answers a lot of the tukade tukade slogans that keep happening, that when there is a constitution, you don't have to go for a revolution. Only because you deny us a gun, we pick up a pistol. Only because you deny us light, we gather in darkness to compass means to knock out the fetters that hold our mother down. Now I'd like to end again, being a musician too, uh, I'd like to end with a little uh, bit of music. Now this was again 
you see the human side of this man uh, after madanlal dhingra's uh, execution he was extremely broken and then you know with his friend niranjan pal the son of uh, bipin chandra pal who, uh, who was with him in london they go to the sea side of uh, brighton and there as he sees the ocean he just breaks down in tears and he composes this beautiful song sagara pran tal malala in marathi o, o, ocean uh, you know my soul is so shaken and in so much of distress and he shides the ocean saying you know you you fooled me you brought me to this distant land saying you know i will get education i will get all of this but then coming here uh, you know i i i want to go back to my uh, little hut of my mother uh, which is what uh, has been deprived i've been fooled by you sagara so i thought the best way to end would be with a little clip of that again tuned by hridayanath mangeshkar and sung by all the mangeshkar sisters So revolutionary with a heart of a poet. Thank you so much for your patience here.